I'm Dr. Lydia Brandt, and this is our first stop on Historically Complex, a tour of the South Carolina Statehouse grounds. Brought to you by Historic Columbia with a grant from South Carolina Humanities. You should be standing on the north side of the South Carolina Statehouse, looking at the building with the statue of George Washington in front of it. If you're not at the Statehouse grounds in Columbia right now, that's fine. Go to historiccolumbia.org slash monuments to follow along with an interactive map, to see historic photographs, or to get more information. Also keep an eye out for my guidebook to the grounds, which will be released by the University of South Carolina Press in May 2021. The building you're seeing in front of you is a grand classical revival building meaning that it has lots of references to ancient Greece and Rome, but they're kind of all mixed up in a way that is pretty American. It's made of granite that was quarried from just up the river here in Colombia. It has a really high copper dome that, if you go inside, lights an immense lobby that sits at the center of this cruciform or cross-shaped building. Two matching porticos or classical temple fronts sit on the north and south sides of the building, lining up with Main Street. If you look around, you'll notice that this building actually sits in the middle of Main Street, making the building feel even more important. The whole city seems to revolve around it. Walk up to the statue of George Washington. This is a bronze sculpture purchased in 1858 by the state legislature when this building was still just an idea. The building in front of you is the second Capitol building here in Columbia. The first was made of wood and, as capitals go, pretty modest. We'll talk more about what happened to that building later. By the middle of the 19th century, South Carolina politicians wanted a grand building that made a statement about how important South Carolina was to the maturing nation. They hired an architect, John Rudolph Nearncy, who designed this building that you see in front of you. Then they started thinking about how they wanted to decorate the building. And this statue of George Washington was their first decision. Now that we know a little bit about the background of this sculpture, let's start peeling back the layers, like an onion. We'll start by looking closely at the sculpture itself, describing what we see. Then we'll begin to peel back the layers of all the decisions that had to have been made to get the statue to look this way and to be here in this place. Who made these decisions and why? Finally, we'll get to the core of what this statue meant to the people who paid for it. First, let's look closely at the sculpture. It's made of bronze, larger than life-size, on a pretty short base. This is a portrait of someone you probably know pretty well, George Washington, the commander of the Continental Army that won the Revolutionary War for the Americans and the first president of the United States. Washington's wearing his military uniform, his cloak is bunched up and laid on top of a bundle of rods known as a fasces, an ancient Roman symbol for the unity of government. His right hand rests on his walking cane, which you can see is broken at the bottom. If you walk around the back of the statue, you see that there's a plow at his feet. Now that we've looked closely at the sculpture, let's peel the next layer the intention behind the choices to depict George Washington as we see him here in bronze. This sculpture is actually a copy of another sculpture originally carved in marble by a French artist named Jean-Anton Houdon. 
Thomas Jefferson commissioned a sculpture of George Washington from his French friend for the Virginia State Capitol building in the 1780s. Jefferson wanted a sculpture that would not only tell people what George Washington looked like, but also present him as a good example of what an American leader should do, feel, say, and be. There was lots of discussion about what George Washington should be wearing. Some people said he should be wearing a toga to represent the timelessness of the American ideals of democracy. But ultimately, Washington was depicted in contemporary clothing so that he'd be recognizable to people. Even though Washington isn't standing here in a toga, he is representing the ancient ideals of a democratic leader, someone who is disinterested in power because the power belongs to the people. During his lifetime, Washington was praised as such a great leader because he stepped down from power, and that's exactly what this sculpture shows him doing. The Revolutionary War is over, he's taken off his cloak, and he's hung his sword on the side of this bundle of rods, that ancient Roman symbol of the unity of government. Count the rods. There are 13 rods, representing the 13 original colonies, or states. He's not holding his sword in his hand. He's hung his sword on that bundle of rods, signaling that he's giving his power back to the government. At the very moment when Washington was victorious, he walked away. He had just won a war with a pretty scraggly army over the British, the most powerful military in the West. This was a point when Washington had tremendous opportunity to take power even as a kind of king. But instead, he deferred to the new government and went back to his plantation in Virginia, Mount Vernon. And that's where that plow comes in. If the fasces, with the sword hanging on it, tells us what Washington's been doing and what he's giving up, then the plow tells us where he's going. Houdon's sculpture still stands in the Virginia State Capitol, and it's thought by many to be the most accurate portrait of George Washington. Okay, so if that was the intention behind the original sculpture, why did the state government in South Carolina want a copy of the statue in 1858? Statues of George Washington were very popular in the 1850s. Some of the most famous go up in this period, like the giant statue of George Washington on a horse in New York City's Union Square. Virginia also built another sculpture of George Washington in front of their state house in the 1850s. His home in Virginia was in the news constantly as a group of women, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, purchased the house from the family and opened it to the public as a museum. By purchasing a statue of George Washington, South Carolinians were jumping on that bandwagon and showing that as one of those 13 original colonies, one of those rods in the fasces that he hangs his sword on, they wanted to make a statement about their part in the founding of the nation. But there's also something else about George Washington that white South Carolina politicians wanted to connect themselves to. Washington wasn't just praised in the 1850s for being a great leader. He was also praised for being a slave owner. In the decade leading up to the Civil War, at a time when slavery was the issue in American politics and society. Many Americans who believed in enslaving other human beings pointed to Washington as an example of slavery's goodness, righteousness, and importance to the founding of the nation. By purchasing a copy of this very famous sculpture of George Washington, white South Carolinians were enshrining this version of Washington in bronze for their new statehouse. 
they were making a point about slavery's importance to the nation, as well as its importance to South Carolina's economy, politics, and society. And here's where we get the core of that onion, the layers of meaning. In its first iteration, in Virginia, the sculpture was about the importance of George Washington's example for American leadership. The copy in the 1850s is also about George Washington, but it's using him in a very different way. It's zeroing in on that plow at his feet. The fact that when he gave up power, he went back to his plantation, where he'd enslaved hundreds of Africans and African-Americans to run his business. In 1858, just a few years before the start of the Civil War, this sculpture was absolutely about slavery. And as the first sculpture for this new state house, this set the tone for the ideas that would be at the center of this grand new building. I'm Dr. Lydia Brandt, and this is Historically Complex, brought to you by Historic Columbia with a grant from South Carolina Humanities. Our next episode will be about the building you see in front of you, completed after the purchase of the statue of George Washington, as well as the sculptures that followed it that you see today on the front of the State House. See you then. This podcast was written by me, Lydia Brandt, Associate Professor of Art and Architectural History at the University of South Carolina. It was produced by Jake Irwin. The music was composed and performed by Jake Irwin. Thank you.